to Sunday night at BFC. These are uh, messages that will be prepared for us to uh, study together, to be together, to learn together as we go through this time of COVID-19 social distancing. We want to bring you uh, some nourishment from the Word on Sunday night, and so glad you're here, glad you're joining us. Let's uh, read the Word of God that we'll be dealing with tonight and ask the Lord to give us His blessing. The passage we've got before us tonight is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 together tonight. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5. If you're using a pew Bible, what in the world are you doing at Bible Fellowship Church? You're supposed to be home. Yes, you can laugh. It's okay. The word of the Lord says this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this privilege that we have of studying the Word of God together. We pray that you will help us, even during this time when we're physically separated, to be one in spirit, to be listening to your spirit, to be taught by your spirit, so that we might hear your word. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is it the end? Is this the end? Now, that's a question that I'm being asked more and more frequently these days. And you can understand why. Our world seems to be coming apart at the seams right now, doesn't it? Mass shootings, chaotic politics, rampant immorality, dangerous conditions in world affairs, potential economic disaster, and now on top of everything else, pandemic. The real possibility that perhaps 100,000 of our fellow Americans may not survive about with COVID-19 in the coming days and coming weeks seems almost apocalyptic, doesn't it? So no wonder we're asking ourselves the question, is this the end? Is there an answer to the question? And if so, where can we find it? You know, when Gwen and I were working in Paraguay, one of our teammates was Dave Bremner, a South African veterinarian and church planter. He was working in the rural areas of the country, and he had these new believers that had come to know the Lord through his ministry. And whenever one of his new believers would ask him a question, they always did it with a smile on their face because they knew exactly what Dave's answer would be. They would say, Brother Dave, we read this in the scripture, or we have this question. What does this mean? And David would turn to them and always say the same thing. He would say, well... What does the Bible say about it? If we want an answer to the question, is this the end, we'll have to find it in our Bibles, won't we? What does the Bible say? Well, it says, and here's our big idea for tonight, it tells us that Jesus has spoken clearly about what's ahead. We should remember what he told us if we want to be comforted about the things that are going on in this world. 
Paul is dealing with this, the Thessalonians are asking this same question. They're saying, is this the end? Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul is writing to them, and he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The Thessalonians are saying, is this the end? Is this it, Paul? Now, why are they asking that question? Well, there are two reasons why they're asking that question. First of all, they had been taught correctly to expect the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the day of the Lord, this day of tribulation that precedes his coming, would come. And so they had been taught that, and that was a correct thing. They were looking for his return. But there was another reason why they were asking that question. In some way, someone or something had disturbed them with wrong information about his coming. That they had received, as Paul says here, uh, a, a spoken word or a spirit or a letter seeming to come to, from us to the effect that the day of the Lord would come. Something had disturbed the, the, their peace about this matter, implying to them that perhaps they were in the tribulation period, that this time of, of wrath would come, and it would be very easy for them to think that. After all, they were a persecuted minority in their day. And so they had gotten some idea that maybe they had missed the cue that they were supposed to have and that this prophecy of the Lord's coming was already in effect and that they should be looking for Jesus in any day. You know, prophecy is given to us to set our hearts at rest and to keep our faith strong while we wait for Christ's return. But it only works if we know what the Bible truly teaches. If we don't know what God has said, or if we don't properly understand what God has said, we'll always be susceptible to confusion and troubled hearts. And outside influences, such as the ones that had overtaken the Thessalonians, can cause this kind of confusion. Men trying to teach us things they don't really understand themselves can cause believers to have turmoil of soul. In our day, many so-called teachers of Bible prophecy share more from their morning newspaper than from the actual Word of God, for example. Now, dear ones, if we're not well taught, we'll be just like the Thessalonians, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us, as Paul described them. It is the Bible alone that can avoid this kind of confusion. The doctrinal point of what uh, is, Paul is saying here is simply this, We'll find the answer to our questions about Bible prophecy in our Bibles and not in our newspapers. Have you ever been caught between two opposing points of view? Whatever the issue is, the first person you listen to explaining the situation sounds pretty convincing, at least until you listen to the other person's explanation of what is going on. So where does that leave you? It leaves you stuck in the middle not knowing who to believe. In these situations, we feel uncertainty, confusion, a turmoil of soul. Who's right? How can you tell? Well, the only way out of your dilemma is to find the authoritative source of the truth about the matter. And that's the only way out of our prophetic confusion as well. We must go back to God's word alone to understand 
what God wants us to know. A sure way of becoming confused and unsettled about what's coming is to listen to our newspaper rather than our Bibles. Many people are teaching prophecy today through the lens of what's happening in the world rather than through the Bible. These folks are always finding signs of Christ coming in blood moons or movements of nations or earthquakes or even in pandemics. Now, let me just give you a piece of advice. Stay away from those folks. They can't really help you. They'll only confuse you. If you want something to comfort your heart, you'll have to find it in the scriptures. And what the scriptures say about this is as clear as sunshine. So what does the Bible say about the matter? Look at verses three and four. Does the Bible answer the question? Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says, Now let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The Bible does give us an answer. It does give us a pathway through which we can escape being deceived if we're willing to avail ourselves of it. What does the Bible say about the question? Now, there are two principal passages that we're going to look at tonight to derive the answer. First of all, these five verses that we've just read that we have before us in Thessalonians. And there's another passage as well over in Matthew 24. And we specifically want to look at verses 10 and 15 in Matthew 24 to give us some help in this matter. In a very real sense, the passage in Thessalonians that Paul has given us is simply an exposition of what Jesus had told his disciples in Matthew 24. Looking back at Matthew 24, we find a parallel between the disciples' reaction to Jesus' prophetic statement when he said, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus was talking about the temple. He had said that to his disciples. There's a, uh, the disciples have a reaction. They're, they're concerned about this. And the Thessalonians have a reaction. Their reaction is in response to this thing that Paul to, refers to a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us that Paul supposes they've received, causing them this confusion. And in both cases, there are questions and concerns. Further explanation is required so that their hearts will be at rest about these truths. Jesus, therefore, answered his apostles' question, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of, the coming, of your coming in the end of the age, by giving them two markers to watch for. First of all, in Matthew 24.10, there is a marker that says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In other words, Jesus is telling his apostles the first sign of his coming would be the falling away and apostasy of many from the Christian faith. And then in verse 15, he gives them a second sign. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, this is his second marker. It's the arrival of Antichrist on the world stage. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 
Paul simply exposits these two signs in his answer to the Thessalonians. Listen to what he said. He said, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. What is he talking about? He's talking about the apostasy. And then he goes on to say, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the same thing Jesus was talking about, the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, or the man of sin. So here's the answer to our question. The signs we've been given to watch for are a falling away from the Christian faith by many and the arrival on the world scene of the man of lawlessness predicted by Daniel the prophet, this man who will dominate world history just before Jesus returns. But now wait a minute, pastor, you say. What about wars? What about famines? What about pandemics? Aren't we told that these things will come just before Jesus returns too? Yes, we are told that, but we're told more about these things. We're also told that these will be signs of routine world history until the time of the end arrives. Jesus said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth plane pains, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 7 through 8. In other words, routine history between Christ's first coming and his second coming will be characterized by these things as well. So the signs that we're looking for that immediately precede his return are this falling away that he's predicted and the man of lawlessness that we are told will come. Verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us plainly what to expect when the man of lawlessness arrives. We may be in doubt uh, about that, but our answer is, here's here's what characterizes him. Paul says in verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians, this man will will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. In other words, this dominating world figure will come on the scene, claiming to be God, uh, perhaps even doing uh, things that uh, appear to be supernatural in nature, and he will deceive many. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that. The verse is, is fairly plain. But concerning this group of people, this falling away, we may have some questions. So does our Bible give us any help with what that means? And let me suggest to you that yes, Jesus gives us instruction in Matthew 13 in the parable of the soils about these people. Now you will remember that, that parable from Matthew 13. Jesus says a sower goes out to sow and he scatters the seed and he gives four kinds of reactions or receptions to the seed, which is the word of God. Uh, The first reception is uh, that the word falls on uh, rocky soil, you'll remember. It doesn't produce anything. The birds come and eat it up. Nothing happens. The second soil falls in uh, in, uh, shallow soil where it has rock underneath. And so the seed seems to take root. The word seems to take hold in the hearts of this particular kind of person. But when tribulation comes or when persecution comes, 
they they walk away. They say we don't believe that. This is too tough. We we don't we're not going to do that. That's the second kind of soil. The third kind of soil in the parable is that the 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 seed takes root. The word seems to take root. Uh, something seems to spring up, but after a while, it's choked out by weeds around it. And Jesus tells us in the interpretation of the parable that this is. These are the worries of this world. These are the troubles of life that seem to overtake people and choke the life out of the seed so that no fruit is born. And then finally, there's the last kind of soil, and that's the soil where the seed falls and grows up and begins to produce fruit, sometimes 30-fold, sometimes 60-fold, and sometimes 100-fold. Now, this parable can help us in understanding about these people who fall away. So we find there that those who fall away will be of these two types of what the theologians in our day call temporary faith. In other words, a faith that fails. This is represented by the second kind of soil and the third kind of soil. The, the soil that falls on, the word that falls on shallow soil or the word that's choked out. In other words, these people have a kind of faith that's merely external to them. It's never actually received into their hearts, and so it never produces any fruit. Uh, this kind of faith produces no fruit in the life of the one who claims to be a Christian and is of no value in the matter of salvation. The marks of this are that one kind of this temporary faith exists in people who eventually deny the faith. They simply walk away and they say, we don't believe this anymore. When the going gets tough, they get going. The second kind of this false faith is, is contained in the hearts of people and minds of people who, who continue to claim to be Christian, perhaps even to the end of their life. But the faith that they claim to have has been choked out and amounts to nothing. It doesn't produce any fruit in their lives. These are the people uh, that uh, might be described as uh, cultural Christians or uh, unsaved Christians in a recently published book. Uh, they, they have the outward trappings of salvation, but in fact, the gospel has never taken hold in the interior, and so their lives bear no fruit. And here, as we're told in Scripture, fruit, as we're told, is uh, the evidence of genuine salvation. So here are the two attesting signs that Jesus gives us in Matthew 24 and that the Apostle Paul gives us in 2 Thessalonians. The first is that there will be a falling away by these people who have this temporary kind of faith, either an outright denial or a, simply, a simple uh, innervation of the faith so that it produces no fruit. And the second sign of the Lord's coming is that the man of lawlessness will appear on the scene, the Antichrist, this one who will oppose uh, anything that calls itself God and proclaim himself to be God. Now, the doctrinal point that we're being told here is simply this. When you see these two signs, look up because your redemption draws near. These are the signs to look for if we want to know when to expect the Lord Jesus. Suppose someone said to you, tomorrow I'd like you to go to the store and pick up a few things for me. Well, that's, that's far as far, fine as far as it goes. But your follow-up question would probably be something like, well, I'll be glad to do that for me. Just tell me what to get. But suppose your friend said to you, uh, just get some things, you know, a little of this and a little of that maybe. 
Now, how could you expect to get the things that are needed unless clear communication is, giving to, is given to you concerning the things that are wanted? Clear communication is the secret to getting the results that you're aiming at. Unless we're in no doubt as to what the Bible says about Christ's return, how can we live without doubt and fear and uncertainty? We'll find ourselves in the same condition as the Thessalonians. And dear ones, this is not what Christ intends. Anyone in confusion concerning Christ's return needs to hear his answer to the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? His answer is, a falling away of many, previously confessing faith in me, and the arrival on the scene of the world of the man of sin who will dominate world history just before Christ's return. The Bible goes on to tell us, now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. That's from Luke 21, verse 28. Until these signs become clear, then we should uh, use that motto that's been popular in our day, keep calm and carry on. We've got work to do while we await his arrival. Don't let yourself be knocked off your feet and stop doing what you should be doing as you wait for Jesus to come. Watch for the true signs. And then verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul has one more word to say to his people. He says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He says to them, don't forget to remember. Remembering these things will give us comfort. Paul seemed surprised that the Thessalonians had uh, forgotten what he had taught them about Christ's return. Now, I, I understand that, and perhaps you're like me and have some sympathy for these Thessalonians in their confusion. After all, knowing what our Bible says is one thing, but remembering what it says is another. If we would be comforted, we must remember what God has said to us. And this takes some effort on our part. Unless we often rehearse to ourselves the truths that we've been taught, we may very fi well find them slipping into a haze in our thinking. The doctrinal point from this verse is simply this. It's important for us to remember to remember what we've been taught. You know, my memory was perfectly described by a co-worker a number of years ago. She said about herself, my memory is excellent. It's just short. Well, that's me. In order to beat this problem into some kind of submission, I carry on my phone an excellent calendar program. Whenever anyone asks me to do something on a certain date, without fail, I immediately put the event into my calendar. Now, that sounds, sounds very efficient, I know, but the problem is I never remember to look at my calendar. I remember to write the event down, but I don't remember to look at what I've written down. I desperately need to remember to remember. And if I would just develop the habit of looking at my calendar once every morning, I could save myself a lot of surprises later in the day. You see, the things that are important to us, we rehearse in our minds often so that we don't forget them, so that it becomes a habit to remember. The secret to remembering is to pay careful attention to what we've learned and to use it often in the course of our day. 
And Bible truth works that way too. Unless we remember to remember, unless we pay careful attention to it and put it into practice often, the truths of Scripture, like this prophetic truth we've been taught, will begin to lose their grip on us. The comfort we should receive from prophecy, for example, escapes us if we don't remember clearly what our Bibles say. So let's go back to our original question. Is this the end? Well, my answer to you is, I don't know. What does your Bible say? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us out of your word and that you've given us your truth and that it helps us, that it comforts us. Help us not to be disturbed by the events that are going on around us, but to keep looking up, watching for the true signs that you've given us of Christ's return. Thank you for loving us enough to speak to us about these matters. Help us to have courage in these days and to keep calm and to carry on. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this Sunday night podcast. Look for another sermon next week, another lesson from God's word next week. And don't forget about Let's Talk, our daily devotional that you can find Monday through Friday on our website or on our BFC Family Facebook page. We love you. We're concerned about you. Let us know how we can serve you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.